0: i'm aaron david miller and this is carnegie connects good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you are in this uh, world of ours i hope you're all safe and sound i'm aaron david miller senior fellow at the carnegie endowment for international peace and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a set of virtual discussions, at least for now, uh, on issues of critical importance to America and the world. Today, I'm really pleased, um, especially pleased, to host uh, Halima Croft. Um, Halima is the managing director, and I want to get this right, Halima, the managing director and head of global commodity strategy and Middle East and North Africa research at RBC Capital Markets. So, Halima, first of all, welcome to Carnegie Connects.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to see you. And I can think of nobody, seriously, I mean, having listened to you two or three times in the last several weeks, I can give nobody better or more experience to help us sort through both the headlines and the trend lines in today's, I guess I'm understating this complex global energy environment. But before we get into all that internal tick-tock about oil, I usually ask the guests on the show to tell us a bit about their personal background, at least professionally, their personal, professional perspective. And uh, I had Madeleine Albright on the show last fall before she passed away. Um, I worked for her for a bit at the Department of State. And she told in a remarkable story about going through uh, customs at Heathrow. The Brits had some question about one of her documents. This is a- after she left um, Foggy Bottom, after her 10. And um, frustrated, she said to the customs official, do you know who I am? And the Brits replied, as only the Brits could, no, but we have very good doctors that could help you figure that out. So let me ask you, from the professional <laughs> point of view, Holly Croft, um, who are you? Tell us a little bit about your, your professional background and how you, uh, uh, how you came to be where you are now.
1: So, I run a commodity research group at the Royal Bank of Canada. I started my sort of professional career after graduating from Princeton with a PhD in economic history in 2001. I joined the CIA in December of 2001, December 1st, 2001. And it was a really, you know, very transformative time to be in the intelligence community. I had a background working on sub Saharan Africa and the Middle East on commodity issues, and I joined a group of analysts that were looking at these sort of global economic issues around security of energy. And I was the analyst actually covering Nigeria, the economic analyst, and it was a really interesting time because there was this whole conversation, as you remember, about energy dependency um, there was a sense that potentially Saudi Arabia was running out of oil. Remember Matt Simmons and that whole thesis? And there was this view in the administration that energy security came through diversity of supply. And so we were very focused as the US government on sourcing oil from different parts of the world. And so hence being an analyst covering Nigeria was actually a good career path in the intelligence community at the time because Nigeria was producing around 2.3 to 2.5 million barrels a day on any given day. But there was this expectation that when they were able to bring on offshore fields, that their production would grow to 4 million barrels a day. And there was a whole conversation about should we developing relations with countries like Nigeria as they grow their production easier to get their oil, shorter shipping time, but we also saw countries like Nigeria as emerging democracies and questions about, are these the type of governments that we should be partnering with in the future? Now, I think it's interesting because if I think about 2001, Nigeria producing around 2.3 to 2.5 and the expectation of four, on any given day, Nigeria struggles to produce 2 million barrels a day now. And so there's a really interesting question about what happened in a country like Nigeria that it wasn't able to reach its production potential? What does that mean for the 200 million plus citizens that live there? But that was a really interesting time for me. And then I went to the Council on Foreign Relations. I was an intelligence fellow there and I worked on a project on how can we have countries or what type of tools are there to help countries think about better managing their oil revenue so they don't get stuck in situations like Nigeria, where they were having militancy issues about environmental degradation from the oil industry. And I was also in a task force in energy and national security, which was very interesting, where we we're thinking about what does it mean for the United States to be dependent on foreign oil pre-shale revolution. And so now that we have this abundant resource in the United States that raises all interesting questions about. What foreign policy changes come from that, or that don't come from that? But professionally, I moved from the C from CIA CFR to Wall Street, joined Lehman Brothers. That's a whole other story about Lehman Brothers pre financial crisis. But that was really my transition to Wall Street. Was really two thousand five, two thousand six, and I've been working on these energy issues, outlook for energy markets since then.
0: You know, now that you brought up Lehman Brothers, I didn't. Been- uh, focus lately on Saudi Arabia, and my own view is that unlike Lehman Brothers, uh, um, there's a view in the U.S. government now that the U.S.-Saudi relationship is simply too big to fail. But we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. I want to ask you one more question where we move on to the substance about the CIA and, and and intelligence. I mean, I worked as an intelligence analyst for four or five years at INR, and the tsunami of information that you get on a daily basis forces you to choose to prioritize to sift through what what matters from what doesn't but if you had to identify the downside of being in a hermetically sealed environment at the agency surrounded by all this info in terms of your capacity to analyze the world accurately what what, what do you think the downside is
1: I mean, first of all, I would say I loved being an intelligence analyst, you know, young in my career at the agency, because I loved that sense of all this information coming in, kid in a candy store, getting into the office at four o'clock in the morning and being told you better sift through this as fast as possible, because you might have to write a PDB to figure out the story. But, you know, the, the downsides were, you know, not being able to pick up the phone. Like I was an economic analyst and. I did a couple, I did a rotation at Treasury and it was it was great to be at Treasury because, oh my God, I could talk to the IMF if I had a question. And at the time you, you actually couldn't call the IMF if you had a, a question about a country you were covering. So the ability to pick up phones, to go to countries, you know, as quickly as you need to, to figure out what's going on. So there are all types of sort of conversations you can have with with foreign nationals, you know, that can be sometimes a challenge at the intelligence community. But I I do think that it was one of the the greatest analytic training grounds you can ever have as someone interested in foreign policy. I joke, it's the mother of all postdocs is to go to the CIA.
0: Yes. I mean, I I think you're right. I I talked to my CIA colleagues at the time. Um, The State Department was different. You could basically call anybody and you could basically go anywhere. I did a TDY in Jordan uh, uh, for a bit during that period. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is a downside. But clearly, you've emerged as one of the top oil and energy analysts in the country, uh, if not in the international community. So uh, I agree with you on analytical training. So let's jump right into it. Um, Let's take a big step back and take a look from 30,000 feet. Then we'll focus on the granular. We've had energy crises before. 1973, in the wake of the Arab-Israeli War, October War, 1979, the Iranian Revolution, uh, Persian Gulf War one, when millions of barrels came off off the market. How does what we're witnessing today differ fundamentally um, from those previous oil disruptions, and how much is the same?
1: Well, you know, I think it's interesting is to take this actually back to 2020 because I feel like we've been in so much volatility since. 2020. I could actually talk. take it back to September 14th, 2019, when we had half of Saudi Arabia's oil you know, exports temporarily knocked offline because of cruise missile attacks. But if we think about 2020, we had the biggest collapse in demand in history because of the COVID pandemic. And we actually had, in the midst of that, this price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia for a brief period. Remember, oil actually went negative for a while. And there was all this conversation in 2020 when we had the price collapse of, are we seeing the end of oil? You know, is this peak demand? And are these Gulf states essentially going to have to find a new business model because we're rapidly moving ahead with this energy transition and we're not going to need these products going forward? And that's that. And I think what we didn't see at the time was the investment that was coming out of the sector meant that when we had a reopening from covid with the lifting of these lockdown restrictions that there could be this gap in terms of available supply to meet demand before we got to the energy transition stage that governments in the west were sort of hoping to get to you know 2030 and onwards and so if we go back to like february 23rd pre the day before the invasion We already had a very, very tight oil market. Like I was actually in Saudi Arabia two weeks before the invasion at an international energy forum, IEA, OPEC symposium. And we had $90 Brent at that point. And many analysts who did not think there would be a Russian invasion of Ukraine, who basically took the position of the Europeans that the Russians wouldn't do this, they still had forecasts for oil touching 100 over the summer because of this sort of tight
0: market? Your answer prompts a question. Are you suggesting that the market was already tight and large, part because oil companies fearful of another boom and best, boom and bust cycle. and Wall Street investors didn't make the proper investments either in hydrocarbons or, or uh, others in renewables. I mean, what what were we primed for a disaster?
1: I'm not a, I'm not ascribing a value judgment to this. What we simply saw was a massive contraction in investment. As people thought about a demand not being there. We did not know what the post-covid recovery would look like. I mean, think about it, you know, before the vaccines emerged, what did we think the world we would be living in would look like? And so some of these were decisions about a we don't know when there will be a reopening. There were questions about, you know, you had shale investors in the United States essentially saying shale is not a winning investment. And so the 2020 moment was such a period of profound uncertainty that I don't think it's necessarily surprising that you had this pullback in investment. Because again, we witnessed such a profound collapse in demand and nobody knew what the road forward would look like in terms of when we'd get this economic reopening. But on the back of the, the success of vaccines and the, the open, reopening that we saw, we simply did not have necessarily the spare capacity needed to have a flush oil market. And so we've had a number of, if you look at OPEC, for example, OPEC made the decision in July of last year to start adding barrels back to the market. And what we've seen is, is that a number of countries have struggled to add barrels back because they're essentially, they don't have the supply or they have infrastructure problems. They can't easily bring these barrels to the market. So we're back in a situation where we just have a small handful of countries that can fill any gap. And that's when we get to Russia. And the fact is, as I said, Russia is such a major oil exporter, natural gas exporter. You talk about ags as well and metals. But if you're looking at a situation where you have to say, now I may have to think about millions of barrels of Russian oil exports not finding a home, how do I fill this gap?
0: Uh-huh. So it's February 24th. The Russians invade. They're responsible for what? One out of every 10 barrels of oil. 50% of their oil goes to Europe, yeah. a smaller amount to the United States. With monthly transactions of billions of dollars into the Russian economy, so the international community, the United States, the EU, NATO, in a rare example of alliance management, steps up and passes all of these comprehensive—I uh, mean—funds uh, the Ukrainian war effort, slaps on sanctions that w- could be de- described as a sort of nuclear drops a nuclear bomb on the Russian economy—and uh, yet there there appears to be even with this massive disruption an adjustment china and india are basically bankrolling putin's war effort interestingly enough the us navy in the persian gulf is protecting chinese supply lines uh they're they're getting a free ride from our security investment um so where are we now in terms of the russian component in this European and global balance of supply and demand.
1: Well, I think that 1st
0: four months in.
1: Yeah, I think the first thing to, to step back is and think about February 25th. I think there was an expectation in many g- capitals in you know, Western Europe and certainly the United States that this would be a short war, that Russia would overwhelm Ukraine and that the Ukrainians would fight valiantly, but essentially it would be Russian troops in Kyiv if that was their end destination three or four weeks in. And so the sanctions that were put in place initially were designed to send a powerful message to Putin, but they were also designed to cause as minimal disruption to oil and gas markets as possible. Yes, we disconnected key Russian financial institutions from the SWIFT payment system, but we did carve-outs for energy. Remember this phrase, we hurt them, not us? The goal initially was was to keep the oil flowing, make Russia take a discount, you know in terms of the revenue, but it was not to take the barrels off the market. It was not the Iran' strategy. It was not the strategy to remove Russian barrels from the market because again, Aaron, february twenty third we already had a very tight oil market. Remember, you had Jake Sullivan out in August of last year saying, we need more OPEC barrels. We had had a release from a strategic petroleum reserve in November. So the administration, it wasn't just the Biden administration, but you know, European governments as well were very focused on, we need to keep the Russian molecules flowing. And that, I think, has put Western governments in a bind as they think about how do you respond to Putin, because it does signal to Putin hey, if I really want to be disruptive, if I really want to lead to questions about your willingness to see this through, let's try a little energy disruption. I think we're seeing that really play out right now in the case of the way the Russians are slashing gas exports into Europe. And you now have the head of the IEA, Fatih Burrow, saying Europe may have to go without Russian gas entirely come winter. And so that is like really like, We complain about $5 a gallon gasoline in the United States. Europe is looking at rationing. They're looking at industrial curtailments. Like if Russia is really intent on, you know, turning the taps on gas on Europe, and they're they're cutting gas this summer to also prevent the building of necessary gas storage as you head into winter. Like Europe is facing a profound economic crisis from this war. And so I think that that is, again, it has led to this anxiety about what's the way forward in terms of penalizing Russia. And we see this playing out on this issue of price caps as well.
0: Yeah, we're going to get that. You know, in a globalized world, it works both ways. Hallelujah. The world is connected. But if the world is connected, guess what happens? You have a a boomerang effect. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, people keep telling me, just wait. Wait another four months. Wait another six months. Wait until all these energy sanctions on gas and uh, right now they're on, they're on uh, the oil is flowing in pipeline right, but not by tanker. And I don't know where they are in refined diesel product. But what happens when all of this, all of these uh, nation crushing sanctions, economy kick in? Is that going to make a difference? It, it may raise the price of oil.
1: Yeah, this is again. Like, watch what happens in January. And this is the issue about, you know, Europe right now has announced sanctions that will essentially say, come January 1, there'll be a couple of small exemptions for Hungary and Slovakia, but by and large, there'll be no seaborne imports into Europe from Russia. And also, Germany and Poland are going to halt pipeline imports as well. So you're talking about sort of 2.2 to 2.4 million barrels of Russian oil that will not have a home. Now this is, I think that if I leave you with nothing, this is why this issue of like shipping and insurance are very important sanctions. Because we have seen this dramatic rise in Indian imports of Russian oil. If you basically... Can you know get oil at a $30, $35 discount, which India is now getting of Russian get you know oil, they're gonna back that truck up and take that oil. So Indian imports have grown by like tenfold. We've seen imports, you know, Russian imports have surged into China as well. They're they're flowing into Turkey. But the shipping and insurance sanctions become really important because 60% of Russian oil is carried on Greek flag tankers. If the European Union sanctions that would prohibit Those vessels from carrying those cargoes, if those come into effect, it's going to become a lot more complicated, not impossible, but a lot more complicated for India to continue to be securing the same volume of Russian cargoes. And then you add on insurance sanctions. Who insures those cargoes? It's UK and European firms that dominate the provision of insurance services to ship those cargoes. Again, there are some workarounds but not easy workarounds. So what you could be talking about come January 1 is not the game of musical barrels, where essentially the European barrels go into Asia, and then maybe some Middle Eastern barrels that were going into Asia are now displaced by Russia and going into Europe. If you have shipping and insurance sanctions, you may be talking about removing barrels from the market. And not having a home. And that's what I think is making policymakers in Washington very nervous. Hence, why all this conversation about price caps essentially saying, Europe, let's rethink your shipping and insurance sanctions. Why don't you simply say to Reliance Refineries, hey, you know what? You have to tell the Russians that they need to basically accept. I don't know, a $60 discount in order for us to be able to move this on a European flagged vessel. That is what this whole issue at price caps is, finding a way that you reduce the revenue that Vladimir Putin gets from these sales into Asian markets while at the same time ensuring or trying to ensure that those barrels still move into Asian markets so the musical barrels game can continue.
0: Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org/donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below. To receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. But I think you pointed out in a note, if I'm uh, uh, that, in fact, the price of oil could actually increase because of the uncertainties. Everybody's got to be on the same page for this to essentially work. And trying and and. China and India have to cooperate. And let me ask you this. What, do, what are the Indians doing with all this oil? Are they re-exporting? Are they refining and re-exporting it?
1: Yeah, that becomes a really important point as well, which I think is causing some anxiety. Because, again, if you are Reliance refineries, like one of the refining behemoths in this world, and it becomes harder for you to, like, take Russian barrels, what are you potentially doing to like the products market right now? So I think there is, and we have a very, very tight, we can really go deep on this. We have shortages on products as well. And one of, Russia is a major exporter of refined petroleum products. And a sanction that the EU announced is eight months from now, they're also barring importation of products as well. And so this question about like how you can transport Russian crude and products, like that's going to be really important. And again, if India can't get those barrels or has to reduce, you know, reduce their intake, what does that mean for the products market? But again, I think it's going to be really important to see what happens with these shipping insurance centers, because the price cap, you think Schultz said today, everybody agrees in principle on a price cap. The mechanics are challenging and getting agreement in terms of who sets the price cap, who enforces the price cap? And I think the biggest potential point of failure with all of these measures to try to say, we're going to deprive Putin of revenue, but we don't want to tighten the market. So we don't want to disrupt the flow of energy. The problem is, and the single point of failure is Russia may not play ball. And there is a real risk. And we're seeing this movie play out on natural gas now with the Russians, slashing exports through pipelines like Nord Stream 1, saying there are technical issues because you can't get certain equipment because of sanctions. Most people think this is a very political move. We've seen this movie. And the question is, is Russia going to say, well, I have no choice. I need to sell my barrel. So I'm going to sell it. I'm going to go forward with this discount mechanism. Or am I going to start cutting oil exports this summer and raising the price and seeing how much economic pain you guys are really willing to endure for back in Ukraine. I think that's always the big risk. And there's some like Robin Brooks, who I think has been you know phenomenal in terms of his writing on this. I think one of the best economists covering this. And he has said that, you know, this leads to whole questions about was it a mistake initially to signal that like we weren't going to touch energy? Like, should we have been more in control of the narrative with the Russians by moving more aggressively from the outset? to target oil and gas, because now we're kind of at the mercy of the Russians deciding when they're going to cut flows.
0: Right. Okay. So um, let's leave Russia and Europe for the moment, but in a globalized world, we really can't escape it forever and move on to one of your favorite, my favorite parts of the world, uh, the Middle East. Um the first book I ever wrote was on Saudi Arabian oil and American foreign policy. So I've been interested in this subject for a long time. So before you leave this podcast, we're going to get to the bottom of spare capacity. And exactly, regardless of political circumstances, what can the Saudis actually do on this? But our president is off to Saudi Arabia. Um, I, I think if there were, had been no Russian invasion, I doubt, frankly, despite all the other Legitimate reasons for taking this trip, there probably would not have been the urgency to uh, begin a sort of uh, Mohammed bin Salman rehab project. But the president's going, Um, oil is clearly an important part of this. What, let's let's just talk about apart from any of the politics, from Israel, from Jamal Khashoggi, from uh, MBS the reformer, the ruthless, reckless, authoritarian what can this what are the Saudis willing and able to do with respect to making up for this seemingly dire shortage that we have globally? what can they actually do, and what are the elements that go into the oil related elements not the politics the oil related elements that go into understanding their their thinking
1: i mean I think that the Saudis have been pretty transparent, you know, in terms of saying, like, look, United States, like, you keep coming to us and Western leaders, G7, you keep coming to us and saying, we need more of your oil. And, and the Saudis and the rest of OPEC have said, like, look, just look at our production numbers. You know, we, we are, we're struggling. We at RBC, we hosted an event with the outgoing Secretary General of OPEC a couple weeks ago. And he said, like, look, we've got like two to three producers that have any additional barrels. Like, we're, we're maxed out as a group. And the real question is, is that if you did ask the few countries, and I really think this comes down to Saturday, but yes, UAE has probably a bit of spare capacity. We can talk about the Macron comments, but this really comes down to what spare capacity you could define is what you can bring on in 30 days and, you know, keep on for like, you know, 90 days. And if, so if you're thinking about like, what you could potentially bring on in 30 and keep on in 90. you know, We look at the April 2020 numbers as kind of an interesting reference point. I mean, it's not the Bible, but it's an interesting point to look back at in time because in April 2020, you had this price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. I was actually at that OPEC meeting in March where the Russians refused to essentially cut by an additional 300,000 barrels and join this big cut because they were very concerned about COVID and the whole meeting broke apart, and you had this price war commence between the Saudis and the Russians. And I think the Saudis actually won that price war, by the way, and we can talk about that. Like The Saudis were so clear in March of 2020 that the Russians, if they were not going to agree to cut, they were basically going to push their barrels onto the market and show the costs of not working together. And, you know, I think about like that strategy. They were very resolute. Like I was there when it started and they were basically like, no, we're not going to blink. They're going to blink. And I look at April, 2020, because that was the month where we really saw that we're not going to blink. We're going to win this and we're going to get them back to the table. And if you look at those numbers, when you think they probably didn't hold back much in pursuit of that strategy and they, they slashed their... Domestic refining runs to get barrels out. If you look at that, you could say, well, feasibly, we look at that and say they can probably do a million extra. Like that might be a soft ceiling. So it's it's beyond the numbers clearly that Emmanuel Macron said yesterday when he did the hot mic take and said it's one hundred and fifty thousand. So it's not. It's beyond one hundred and fifty thousand. It, it might be you know a million. It might be a bit above a million, but. We potentially are losing a million Libyan barrels right now. I mean, the ability to have a shock absorber to deal with any major supply disruption, if Saudi Arabia exhausts that now, the question is, Is does the market say, okay, we feel better because we have an additional million out there, a million and a half, or are we now worried because we don't have anything else. And you look at the strategic. Okay. Yeah, that's the problem. Spare capacity.
0: Right. So risk risk aversion rather than risk readiness is going to govern their calculations because they want OPEC discipline, OPEC plus discipline. They are worried and they don't know what Russia is going to do with respect responding to additional sanctions. What happens when European sanctions kick in fully by the end of the year? All of these things are blinking red or at least yellow for them and what if anything do you think what signals have they sent uh to us that over time maybe in september maybe in december maybe in 2023 they're prepared to do incremental well
1: we we got a signal at the last opec meeting where they decided to to switch it up a bit i mean Since July, when they came up with this agreement to start adding barrels back, we've had these very, very short OPEC meetings virtually. We don't have the press conferences anymore, so we don't have the Hollywood Square where analysts are like asking the minister questions, which I loved, by the way. We've had these very short 11, 12 minute meetings and they basically said we agreed in July. And by the way, remember we had a couple of weeks sort of meltdown over this agreement with the UAE and Saudi. There There were issues around like the formula for adding barrels back. But since they got that arrangement, they've been sticking to the script. Last month, they decided, you know what? We're going to bring forward the barrels. We we have three months left on this production increase. We're going to basically make it a two month. So they they are adding barrels back. They basically said, instead of doing 430 a month, we're going to do 648 for the next two months. So we get to August and that cut is unwound. Now, the agreement remains in place. though. So the question is between September and December, is there some mechanism where they can stay together as a group? Because I think the Saudis are very clear they want to keep the group together. But can you find ways to bring more barrels back while staying within this OPEC framework. So I think they could find a way, because again, a number of countries have not been producing their OPEC quotas. Do they say we're going to backfill that? Do they technically stay compliant with the agreement? I would expect that adding the barrels back is going to be done in a way that doesn't rupture this OPEC plus marriage and keeps Russia on side for now.
0: Right. I I would agree. It's in in keeping with a certain transactional nature of the way they're um, doing business these days. Um, I, I I do want to move. Um, actually, let me ask you one question about Iran. My friend Rob Melly is now in Qatar. You, you're going to have some form of resumed uh, negotiations courtesy of the Europeans. The odds are somewhere less than 50% and more than zero. Uh, these negotiations seem to have two speeds, slow and slower, but I still would not rule out, would not rule out um, a, a significant breakthrough. Would that make a difference?
1: Yeah. I, mean, I think every barrel matters in this market. And essentially, when you could think about, is there a mechanism to get an additional million barrels of Iranian exports on the market? Because the U.S. release from Petroleum Reserve, that winds down in October. And we have this requirement that you have to have 90 days of import cover. And so we cannot do another blockbuster SPR release after October, end of October. And so an additional million barrels of Iranian exports would not be trivial to the market at this stage. That said though, I think we, we miss a couple of things and you know this better than anyone else and Bob Malley knows this better than anybody else. The architecture of sanctions relief would mean that Iran would have to first become compliant with the agreement and these are congressional sanctions in order to essentially say to any exporter around the world, like you're free to take those Iranian barrels and still access U.S. capital markets. And so even in a scenario where we were to get a breakthrough, it's not a light switch. And I think that's something that oftentimes market participants don't fully get, that you can't just say, okay, JCPOA 2.0, and tomorrow I get an additional million barrels on the market. And so there still is like a lag time in terms of like, becoming compliant with the agreement before those barrels hit the water. But that's still, if you had a million extra barrels, that could certainly help the situation. And that's why the French, you know, the French are out there saying, let's just like, let's get the Iranian barrels back. Let's get the Venezuelan barrels back. Like That's why you're having certain European countries like, let's get this done.
0: Right. Okay. so let's turn to the US. Um, The mystery of energy independence. So 15 years ago, we were importing two-thirds of, of the oil we consume. Last year, we exported more than we imported. But we remain seemingly just as vulnerable to oil trades in a single market. It's a, it's sort of, sort of like a unified whole. Gas prices are up 50% from what they were last year. Explain to our viewers and listeners why. And then the specific question is why are <laughs> – driving down the district, you know, I'm looking at the the gas stations, the signs, and every American sees this almost every day. Why are gas prices so high?
1: Okay, let's start with your your, um, last question, and then we can work our way back to energy independence or, you know, not dependence. Um, I think that one thing, the investment story also really holds for refinery capacity as well. And we have not built a major refinery in the United States since the late 70s and 1977
0: yeah that
1: is I mean that is a real that is a um and we think about again like a reopening and people getting back on the road and people getting in planes like you have a tight oil market but you now have real refinery capacity issues. And we lost significant refining capacity in a million and a half barrels a day during the pandemic. And so it's not simply a situation that we have a tightness in terms of barrels coming out of the ground, we have a shortage of facilities that can refine those products. And you also have, again, this is where it goes to Russia as well. Russia is a major refined product exporter. So we're also concerned that other countries that are refined products exporters are going to be, you know, not able to export at the previous levels. And the problem the administration has is there is no SPR, no Strategic Petroleum Reserve for refinery capacity. And so that is that we've talked about this before. Unfortunately, this oil market is going to probably have to be balanced by demand. There's probably going to have to be demand destruction, changes in consumption that will balance this market. And Europe is already there. I mean, you have European leaders having the kind of conversation saying, we need to curb consumption. And that is something where United States, we're starting to have that conversation, but we're not where the Europeans are on that conversation. This is not an easy market to fix in terms of policy. And we're already running through policy options that would seem to try to deal with, like, we've done the SPR already. We are probably going to get more barrels from Saudi Arabia, but the, the quantity is finite. We're talking, right. we, we talked about a gas tax holiday. It's unlikely, probably, to pass Capitol Hill. You could watch what governors do. But the issue about a gas tax is, it lead to more consumption? So, again, like, the, the ultimate painful truth of this market right now is it's going to be probably demand and consumption changes that bring down prices.
0: Right. Let me quote, I'm sure you know her. I'm Richard Sen, the chief oil analyst energy aspect in London. Listen to what she says This is last week. Quote, this whole thing is going to end in disaster. The problem is that we are sleepwalking into probably one of the biggest recessions of all time. Demand up for oil and gas is simply too high Versus supply. And governments aren't taking enough measures to lower demand or increase production, in large part because they are still constrained by their pro-climate agendas. There needs to be some realism in government across the board. Demand is too high. It needs to come down hard. Unquote. Is she right?
1: I work with Amrita for years at Barclays. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal analyst. And I, I was with her in Saudi Arabia where she had a great line. It wasn't, it wasn't off the record, so I can quote her, but she said, you know, people need, governments need to have honest conversations with their citizens. And I think that one of the failures right now in the United States, I think it's a specter of Jimmy Carter. I think that the political cost, particularly with midterm elections, to come out and say to... Citizens in this country, that unfortunately we have a confluence of factors that are not easy to solve. You're going to have to think about changing consumption patterns and also saying, you know, there is a price. If we hold these values to be dear in terms of our support for Ukraine being about preservation, uh, you know, the post-war security architecture in Europe and the principle you cannot invade another sovereign nation, unfortunately, that's it's not a cost-free position to take. And so I do think that political cycles do not make this easy to have that kind of conversation. But that is the conversation that needs to be had. And the more we focus on things like SPR and gas tax. I sometimes think that the American public believes that there's some quick lever to pull. Like if only you could restart Keystone XL, which wasn't, you know, it was completed in Canada, but not in the United States and held up in court challenges. If only you could have this sort of quick fix, we could solve this problem. But unfortunately, this is not a situation that is going to be solved quickly through additional supply. It's a situation, unfortunately, that's going to be solved through demand, as long as this war continues.
0: Right. And uh, unfortunately, with the sort of pernicious polarization that affects our politics here, we cannot have honest and serious discussions, let alone action on climate, on immigration, um, on abortion. I mean, we're headed into a a bad patch. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to close on an annoyingly negative note, although I must must say, Halim, your reputation has preceded you. I mean, real clarity and real honesty in this conversation, and it's greatly appreciated. I wanted to ask one final question about the balance between energy security, which seems to be the focus, and climate. I mean, you can't even say energy security is today and climate is tomorrow. The fact is climate is now, but governing is about choosing. And trying to figure out a way, the transition from where we are now to where we would like to go with respect to climate is going to be long, arduous, and incredibly complicated. Uh, but what, how we, how even now, do we try to find that balance between energy security and and transition to renewables?
1: I, I think that we, we see this playing out so perfectly over the issue of natural gas because you think about the obama administration and u.s natural gas exports was seen as actually serving paris climate goals by helping you know move coal out of the energy mix and about you know trying to break europe's dependence on russian gas like it was seen as actually serving climate and energy security goals u.s natural gas exports but then we decided that, you know what, that maybe natural gas doesn't have a role in the transition where many developing nations were saying, you talk to India or Sub-Saharan African nations, like they still wanted natural gas to be part of the the conversation in terms of their transition fuel. So I do think that this crisis has led to a, a reappraisal of that role of natural gas in the transition. I know that does not make every climate activist happy, but I think that is sort of where we're landing in this conversation about achieving climate goals and energy security is a greater emphasis on natural gas exports. Now there are questions about, you know, when you when you build out the infrastructure, you know, are you building stranded assets? That all those issues are coming up. But I think that the really worrying development has to be the fact that we're restarting coal plants. I mean, that to me, you look at what's happening in Germany, and, and and th- their decision to, you know, abandon nuclear. I mean, I think all of these are these are really hard choices. And the thing I also really worry about is keeping the public on side for these necessary and important energy transition policies. Like, if you have a situation come winter, I mean, I'm so laser focused on Europe for winter. If you have a situation in Europe for winter where people are sort of choosing between heating and eating. Like, what does that do for, like, popular support for a lot of these necessary but difficult policies?
0: Uh, All too true. Um, uh, We've come to the end of the 45 minutes. Uh, I cannot thank you enough. I I hope at some point you'll come back. I have a feeling we're not going to be done with this energy crisis. I think it's fair to describe it as such for quite a while. So hopefully you will come back. You were brilliant to say the least. Um, and again, honesty and clarity and analysis is critically important if we're going to even begin to understand the world, let alone try to, to fix it. And Lima, thank you so much once again.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash carnegieconnects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Pernata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller. And until next time, think positive and test negative.